Thank you, Nate. It's one of my favorite hymns. Come all Christians and be committed. That's what we do here on Sunday morning. Every Sunday is a bit of a recommitment service for us as Christians. Well, welcome again this morning. We're going to continue our series through the, the letter to the Ephesians. I was so blessed by Pastor Mimba's sermon last week. Just incredible exegesis and exposition of God's word that he brought. And it was so wonderful to have all these African refugees, many of them who have spent significant time, like multiple decades of years in refugee camps, who were with us, worshiping among us. And I'm sure they felt a little out of place among us, as you could imagine. You put yourselves in, in their shoes. And, you know, I've, I can distinctly remember a few times in my life when I felt like an outsider, when I felt like I was out of place. On the first day of high school for me at Franklin High School, if you take a right on Hillsborough Road and go about 15 miles south of here, you end up at 810 Hillsborough Road, Franklin High School. And the first day of freshman year, I, it was painfully obvious to me that I was one of only about four or five of us who had been to Freedom Middle School in the Franklin Special School District that just so happened to be zoned for Franklin High. All the other freshmen had funneled in from Grassland Middle School. So for me and that little handful from Freedom, it was painfully obvious that we had stumbled into kind of an insider's club, we felt like. We didn't know anyone, and they all knew each other. The times that I've been to Tennessee Prison for Women, just west of here, a few miles uh, west of, of Nashville, the, the rows of razor wire that greet you as you pull up to the entrance, and, and going through security and taking your shoes off like you're at the airport and having an ultraviolet stamp on your hand with the secret password of the day that you have to constantly scan at checkpoints as you move through the layers of security reminds you that you are an outsider, especially at the women's prison, goodness. I, I felt incredibly out of place the first few times that I went there, of course. But I probably never felt like more of an outsider than the first time that I went to Australia when I was 18 years old with the senior class from First Baptist Church Nashville on a mission trip. When we landed in Sydney after, you know, 24 hours or so of travel, we, we exited the airport, got our bags, and, and the cold blast of air in the middle of July that hit me in the face reminded me, you're not in Kansas anymore, you're in a different hemisphere completely. I remember even the clouds looked different to me. And of course, the, the accents of our hosts, we were split up and sent with host homes to go and, and, and stay uh, for a few days while we were in Sydney. Their accents were wonderful, and, and my friend Chris and I got assigned to a sweet lady named Karen. So we walked out with Karen, we made our introductions, and as we arrived at the car, Karen was, she was pushing uh, a toddler in a stroller, and she leans over to me and says, Nathan, be a deer and, and put the pram in the boot. And I just looked at her like she had just spoken some foreign language, and she looked at me like I was some kind of, you know, idiot or something that couldn't understand plain English, and she goes, put the pram in the boot. And I was like, lady, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're saying. And finally, she realized she had watched enough American television to, to know uh, what was happening there, and she said, oh, sorry, what do you call it? Uh, put the stroller in the trunk. Put the stroller in the trunk. And I said, oh, okay, I can do that. So I, I helped her out, put the stroller in the trunk, put the pram, they call it a pram, you know, in the boot of the, the car. 
And then uh, she said, you're tall, Nathan. You, you sit up front. And I said, okay, great. And so I, I walked around to the right side of the car, you know, and just kind of waited for her to unlock the doors. And she stood right behind me looking at me like, again, I was some kind of alien or something. And I looked at her, and then I looked down, and I saw the steering wheel right in front of me. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, right-hand drive, like Mother England, right? Okay, sorry. And I walked around to the other side, just over and over again, all those kinds of cultural gaffes, right, that just reminded me that I was a foreigner. I was a stranger in a strange land. It was constantly made clear to me. Now, I love traveling, right? I love learning new customs and learning new languages and and all that kind of stuff, but it's not always fun to be an outsider, is it? It's not always particularly entertaining to feel like you're an alien or that you're a stranger. It's not fun to be left out on some level, like you're not privy to the inside information that everyone else around you seems to know, like you're not part of the club. It can be incredibly lonely if you're by yourself. I was grateful that my friend Chris was there to laugh with me and at me, of course. But when I was there by myself for eight weeks, I got homesick. I'd never been homesick in my life. I was dating a pretty girl named Morgan back home at the time, and that was part of it, but I was lonely. You know, this is sort of how the new believers in Ephesus felt. The, the letter to the Ephesians is written to people like this. They were outsiders, not in some sort of culturally awkward way, but on a cosmic level. You see, the, the, the vast majority of these new Christians in the area around Ephesus were of Gentile descent. You know, to, to, to be a Gentile means that they were not Jewish, which means they were not part of the covenant people of God. Gentiles were referred to anyone who did not belong to this special, holy, called out, delivered, set apart family of God. The chosen people that came from, from Abraham's line. The, the one nation for his own possession that was his special treasure. That was the Jews only. So the, the word here in the, in the New Testament for Gentiles that's used is ethne. And it literally means the nations, which may not sound that bad to us. It's a cool neighborhood now in Nashville, the nations. There's a frothy monkey there. It's cool. Which doesn't, you know, mean a lot to us. But to the first century Jewish people, they use this term, the nations, as a derogatory term. They, they use it to make fun of the other nations is what they were implying. The ethne were those poor nations that were not chosen by God. In fact, the, the nations were the cursed, dirty people who came from Cain's line or the impure line of Ishmael or Esau's people. This was not the people that came from the pure line of Abel, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our forefathers in the faith. It was a term that was used by Jewish people to, in the first century, make themselves feel superior to feel special, to feel greater than the people around them. Because let's face it, all right, the Jews had a tough time. Sometimes after multiple centuries of oppression at the hands of the nations, you just want to feel like you're an insider. So they, 
they took all these Old Testament laws out of context, out of the original context in which God gave them, and they made it to where it was against the law to have any interaction whatsoever with a non-Jew, because anyone who wasn't Jewish was by nature unclean. And to, to have any contact socially or otherwise would defile a good Jewish person because they were outsiders. The Jews of the first century would call the other nations all kinds of derogatory names. They often referred to those who were outside the covenant as the uncircumcision, referring to the, the, the physical markings of a proper Jewish man. And those outsiders are the very people that Paul is addressing here in the letter to the Ephesians. So if you ever felt like you're outside the club, if you ever felt lonely, if you ever felt like you weren't in on what was happening, take heart. These words are for you today. So let's stand, if you're able to, in honor of God's word this morning as I read our text. The first two verses from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise, the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. The key word in, in this passage is separation. You were separated, it says. The, the Gentiles, the uncircumcision, were mocked and they were derided because ultimately they were separated from God Himself. They were cut off from ever having the hope of obtaining citizenship in the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God. They had no real nationhood, no real citizenship. And therefore, they were separated from having any hope because they were without God, it says here. They found themselves forever on the outside of the, the covenant promises that God made with His special people, the Insiders Club. You know, it was, it was pretty weird for me in Australia. Pretty awkward at times. I can tell you some more stories uh, of how I, I, when I was working with children, how I said things that they just laughed and laughed at because of cultural differences. But what Paul is talking about here is not some sort of social anxiety like the first day of high school at Franklin High. What he's referring to is the ultimate exclusion. To be cut off from God completely and to have no prospect of salvation, to have no prospect of getting in to God's special family, the redeemed of God. The, the Gentiles had therefore, of course, turned to the Greco-Roman pagan gods of their own culture, which of course had proven false time and time again. It's fascinating to read secular historians who will refer to this sense of hopelessness that pervaded the entire uh, world, the civilized Greco-Roman world around this time of Jesus in the first century. 
Because these, this culture had taught them to worship these pagan gods and to, of course, live for themselves much like our culture does, to pursue their own comfort, their own pleasure. But of course, that just left them empty and miserable. They, they had made great strides in science and technology and advanced the borders of the Roman civilization further than ever, but it still left them meaningless with their lives. It was hopeless. But now, verse 13, but now Paul gives them the reality of the gospel. The good news is announced with these two words. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. It's nothing you did like Mimba preached last week. It's by the grace of God that you have been, sometimes kicking and screaming, brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh that was pierced. He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments. The word for abolish means to nullify. It has no power anymore. The law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us, what a great word, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He was hostile to the hostility. And he came and preached, euangelizomai in Greek, the, the gospel. He shared the gospel. He preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Reconciliation. That's the key word in this passage here. No longer are we Gentiles defined by separation. We're now defined by reconciliation. What changed? Jesus Christ changed everything. Because we live on this side of the cross, we can claim reconciliation with God. You know, so far in this letter, in chapter 1 and in the first part of chapter 2, Paul's been focusing on the cosmic work of God, how he's had this plan that's been revealed to us from the beginning of time to redeem this fallen world back into himself, and how he's adopted us as children of God, and how he's brought us into his family and made us right with himself by grace through faith. We are his workmanship created for good works in him that he has prepared for us in advance to do. But now Paul shifts to a Christological focus. The work of Jesus is central to the gospel. It's, it's central to the work of Christianity because through Jesus, we who were once far off have now been brought near to the high and holy triune God. Because of Jesus, everything has changed. There's a, a whole new order of relationships with other people and with God, both horizontally and vertically, 
Everything has changed in the way that we relate to people and to God. You know, we're, we're not Jewish still, but neither are we just Gentiles anymore. We all are the redeemed, the beloved family of God. The, the first Christians referred to themselves, we read throughout history, as a new race. They considered that their whole identity was now defined by Christ, not by their social status, not by their ethnicity, not by their geography or anything else. Being a Christian is a whole new way of being human in this world. It's a new way of existing as a human being. So therefore, we are reconciled to each other across the wide chasms of culture, of geography, of our ethnic backgrounds, of our gender, of our race, of our class, whatever it is, those dividing walls have been removed. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're a new race. There is neither Jew nor Greek there is neither slave nor free. There is no male or and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. Even the major divisions of, of Jews and Gentiles have been removed in Christ Jesus. And there was, in Paul's day, a very real reminder physically of that division between Jews and Gentiles. You know, the temple in Jerusalem, the temple mount, you know, this massive structure that was up on the top of the hill, the highest point in Jerusalem, was, was surrounded by a court that anyone could go into. That was the court of the Gentiles. But the really cool place, the place where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, was surrounded by another court, and that was only for Jewish people. That was called the court of the Jews. They were literally insiders. It was an actual physical representation of what it means to be an insider. And there was a sign that was posted on the wall around the court of the Jews in both Greek and in Latin. And here's what it said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade. No outsider. Surrounding the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. For outsiders to come in was punishable by death. That inner court, of course, was only for the special people. And not only now are we reconciled to one another through Jesus, but we're also reconciled to God. The, the dividing wall between us and God was also represented physically at the temple, not by a wall, but by a curtain. You know, just outside the, the Holy of Holies where God's presence dwelt so richly that any human entered in, surely they would die from being in God's glory, in His presence. There was a curtain, a heavy curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of us. Even the Jews couldn't go in there. But when Jesus died, His atoning death on the cross, we know that that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom symbolizing that our sins that had kept us formally from accessing God the Father have been removed. The law had been nullified. No longer did our sin or the law have power over us. 
keeping us back from running safely into the arms of our Father. Okay, so we Gentiles were once separated from God, and, and now through Christ we have been reconciled to God and to each other. Now what? How then shall we live? Paul closes this chapter with this so what part. Look at verse 19. So then, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Remember chapter 1? You are saints. You're not sinners. Stop looking at yourself as a sinner. You're a saint. You're a fellow citizen with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So separation, reconciliation, and now the key word in this passage, unification. Unification. You are being built together, Paul says, as one structure. What does that look like? Well, to, to be reconciled means to be brought back together. To be restored as one. To be unified again. That's why Paul uses the word one so many times throughout this passage. In verse 14, he says Christ has made us one. In verse 15, he says we are now one new person. In verse 16, he says we're being built into one body. And now in verse 18, he says we all share one spirit who gives us all access to God, our Father. And now he continues that theme of oneness. We're all part of one nation now, and it's, it's not the nation of Israel, it's not the nation of America either, but our citizenship, our first and primary citizenship is in the one true kingdom of God. We are citizens of heaven, Paul says in Philippians 2.20. Then, then Paul says here that we're part of one family now. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know that brothers and sisters don't always get along, but they love each other to the core because they're family. We are one family now. And then finally, he says we're part of one special household, one structure, the, the magnificent dwelling place of God himself, the temple of God, the household of faith that we comprise of as the people of God. And it's clear here that there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. There's no such thing as, as underlings in the household of faith. No matter where you come from, no matter what you've been through in your past, once you are united in Christ by grace through faith, you are just as important to the household of God as anyone else. There is no strata of hierarchy in the church. Well, except for the foundation, of course. I think at some point in every sermon in this whole series, we've referenced the foundation of the household that is being built, right? Pastor Memba had that great illustration last week about his foundation in his first home that he built that he skimped on the, the concrete and 
disaster came when the first storm hit and the house crumbled. No matter what you do to a house, the foundation is the key to the whole structure. You know, Jeff Hammer, who led our, our prayer earlier, works on these 10,000, 15,000 foot houses that are being built around this town. And even those houses that are built with, you know, immaculate furnishings and state-of-the-art HVAC systems and beautiful landscaping, if, if it has all those things, but the foundation is, is not right, the house will come crumbling down and will be worthless. We, the church, are built on the truth, the foundation that the apostles and the prophets have laid for us. And the most important part of that foundation is that Jesus Christ is the center of God's plan to rescue and redeem all of this fallen world back into himself. Therefore, Jesus is the cornerstone of the foundation. You know what the cornerstone was? It was the key block, the key stone that was the first stone in the foundation. It was the stone that had to be perfectly square. It had to be perfectly level. It had to be perfectly in dimensions because every other stone was built off of that stone. If that stone wasn't right, nothing was right. It's a beautiful picture for how we live our lives. If you start buttoning your shirt with the wrong button, it's all going to be wrong. Right? Going all the way up. I've done that a bunch. If, if you build your life on the wrong cornerstone, everything else will be wrong as well. Christ is the key to the whole structure. Christ alone can fill that place of the perfect cornerstone on which the church, both individually and corporately, can establish our lives together and as individuals. It's, it's the place that, that, that enables us to make sense of this life and the next. So we are not the foundation, but we are being built on the foundation together as the, the rest of the house. You know, I, I feel like this world is increasingly divided. We live in a very divided time in our nation right now. Partisan politics competing ideologies and, and ensuing culture wars that are played out across all these media outlets these days have, have been incredibly damaging to our nation and to our communities as well, right? I was watching the State of the Union address on Tuesday night and I was looking at Twitter to gauge reactions from different people and I saw a pretty funny tweet. It said, what a great prank! Someone put glue on half the seats at the State of the Union address. That's hilarious. <laughs> you have to laugh so you don't cry at these things, I think. The church should serve as a model for unity in the midst of a divided world. And yet, too often, churches are no different from the cultures around them. I'm sure you all know about church splits I read, this is a true story, I read about a church called Harmony Church that went through a church split and a group left the church and they planted a new church. You know what they called the new church, right? Greater Harmony Church. I love uh, driving around my wife's hometown in, in rural East Tennessee. You, you see lots of these little churches you, as you drive on the back roads as you kind of get out of the, the little town that she's from. And a lot of these churches have names like New Beginnings Church or New Prospect Church of God or something. 
And I often speculate that a church split somewhere led to these new beginnings or this new prospect, right? On the one hand, I, I think unity in the church should just come about organically as we all grow closer to God and, and to each other. But I've, I've also seen how Satan loves to divide churches, how he loves to sow division and strife among God's people, and therefore unity is rarely easy. We know the foundation is sure and solid. It's not going anywhere, but the structure itself is prone to these kinds of divisions. Therefore, unity takes a certain intentionality. We have to constantly and purposefully pursue corporate unity together for striving for oneness. I think the churches that do not make unity a priority intentionally end up finding themselves divided eventually. So I want to close this morning with just four simple things to be intentional about that I think will help us as Woodmont Baptist Church and as the capital C Church around the world to, to live as one, to be unified. If you're the note-taking type, you can jot this down on your phone or on your weekly. First, we have to be intentional about Christian humility. Often, I think divisions arise because People who think they know what's best are fighting against other people who think they know what's best. And the truth is that none of us knows best, only God does. It's hard to do that. It's hard to remember that. We all see through a mirror darkly in this life, but God sees perfectly clear. One day we'll see him face to face, but we don't now, so we all need to hold our opinions with a modicum of humility. Actually, a massive dose of humility would help us. God is God. We are not. He sees in full. We see in part. It's like a mosaic. We see like this. He sees like this. We see the start of the race. He sees the beginning, middle, and end. We see about 10 feet in front of us. Let's have some perspective in our dealings with one another. Second, cultivating unity means being intentional about thoughtfulness. You know, thoughtfulness means considering where the other person's coming from, thinking about putting yourselves in their shoes. One thing I've learned in pastoral counseling over the years is that when someone's upset and they're talking about one thing, the presenting issue is usually not what they're really upset about. Instead of simply reacting to the, the issue that they're talking about, I'm learning to stop and think, what is this really about? What's driving this anger. When someone's you know, mad about something, I've often found that they're worried sick about their career, or that they're really struggling in their marriage, or that they're grieving the, the loss still of their mom who died a few years ago. Try to think, have some thoughtfulness about what's happening below the surface when you deal with someone like this. Practice thoughtfulness and consider where someone's coming from. Third, be intentional about becoming an active, relentless peacemaker. We know that Jesus told us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, 9. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. This means sowing the seeds of unity everywhere you go. When you know there's a conflict 
Hit your knees before the Father and pray for a resolution and for how you can be a part of that solution, not part of the problem. Finally, let's learn to love one another. Not a cheesy Valentine's kind of love, but a God love. Agape love, gift love that's always seeking to give without expecting anything in return. A selfless love because that's how God first loved us. Every member of the household of God is now a, a brother or sister to you and me and therefore should be treated in that way. We should love them sacrificially, impartially, unrelentingly, and selflessly. Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35, in the upper room on the night he was betrayed, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When the spirit of love is moving in the congregation like I've seen it move here at Woodmont, there's no holding us back from doing what God would have us to do. So just to recap, through Jesus Christ, we've gone from separation to reconciliation, and now let's strive for unification. Let's work together daily to be humble, thoughtful peacemakers who truly love one another with the abiding love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we come to you the sure foundation recognizing that on the foundation that you have laid for us, we are being built together into your household. God, we've all seen what divisions can do among your people. We know that our enemy would love to, to keep us set against one another because he knows how effective it is in stopping your kingdom from advancing. Lord, we just pray against the spirit of disunity. Spur us on to stir up one another to good works of unity. May we strive for oneness by being intentional about holding proper perspective in Christian humility, walking in love, being thoughtful and considerate about the other. God, forgive us when we think we know what's best because the truth is only you do. God, it's so hard for, for us to be humble. We're so prone to to following our own way and pursuing it at all costs. Forgive us of the sin of pride. Forgive us of the sin of, of discord. May we learn to hold our convictions with passion and, and with unwavering ability, but also with humility and love. As you say in Ephesians chapter four, may we learn to speak the truth in love always seeking to be peacemakers in a world that desperately needs some peace and some unity. God, we pray against the divisions that are in our country, in our community, in our world. May we as your people be an example to the world of what true unity, brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ should look like. May you start with each one of us individually. And use Woodmont Baptist Church to be a catalyst for something you're doing that's beyond any one of us. We pray all these things in your high and your holy name, the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, our sure foundation and cornerstone. Amen.
If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, if you're building your life on some other cornerstone that doesn't seem to make sense right now, I invite you to come and talk to me right now about what it means to build your life on Christ, to accept the free gift of salvation that he offers you by grace through faith, to invite Jesus into your heart like Andy was talking about with our children. I'd love to talk with you about what that means during our time of invitation now. Maybe you're doing life on your own. We've had a lot of new members join last month. We had, if you look at the front of the Herald, we have six new members last month. We're just continuing to see people find community, find hope, find sisterhood and brotherhood in Christ in this place at Woodmont. If you need that and you feel the Lord leading you to join this place in that way, I'd love to talk with you about that now during this time of invitation. Maybe you just need to come up here and pray. Maybe you're just broken over what's going on in our, in our city, in our nation. Whatever it is that you want to pray about and you want to come to the altar and just kneel and pray, that's fine too. Let's, whatever you need to do before you leave this place today, make sure that you and God deal with whatever it is. Let's stand now and sing our hymn of response. They'll know that we are Christians by our love. <laughs>